is someone uh, who for almost 20 years has served as a mentor in my life. But more than that, he's family. I call him Uncle Terry. And I met him when I was a 16-year-old, gang-involved, angry teenager. Uh, And I was just recently, quite literally, plunged into the Christian faith. Because I came to faith by getting baptized. (laughs) So he took me under his wing and he began to teach me what it means to follow Jesus. But he didn't just teach me how to pray and read the Bible. He taught me how to live a life of love and integrity. That's really what he modeled for me. And he also challenged my arrogance and my insecurities. He tore me down and rebuilt me. And I know for certain I wouldn't be who I am today if it weren't for him. And I know for certain I wouldn't be in ministry today because he, I was his intern and he made me preach my first sermon. And he did it very, in a very like rude way. <laughs> like, okay, this is how I recall it. You can correct me if you recall it differently. But it was like 15 minutes before the college ministry service. And he came up to me and said, you're preaching tonight. And I, if, I, if I recall correctly, I ran, I, right? I ran outside, and I was outside, and you followed me outside. And I was like, I'm not doing it. And you were like, yes, you are. And there was this discussion for a little while. And I remember what you said was, just share what God is doing in your life. And I was like, okay, I could do that. Like I shared something about um, this life of faith is not a marathon. It's, a, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So simple, so boring. But people were like, oh my gosh, that's what God's teaching me too. And it was like this connection point for me and some of the other college students. The most important thing that Terry has taught me is God's unconditional love, that family of God. He taught me that even though I was a criminal and I lived an immoral life, that I could be loved and welcomed into God's family. And it wasn't because I was suddenly worthy of God's love. It was because I was someone who was made in God's image for whom Christ died. And that's why Terry's ministry was so powerful. Terry attracted the people that religion repelled. And Terry attracts the people who've given up on religion in general. And Terry loves people the way that Jesus loves them. And so that's why I thought it was really important that you all hear from him this morning. So please welcome Terence Austria, the Reverend. Well, I appreciate that, TC, but I've, for a while there I was trying to figure out who you were talking about because I'm like, this doesn't sound like me. And it's a little hard to remember that story because I've been rude to a lot of people since 1999. Well, but it really is a privilege to be here today. Um, it's actually kind of exciting because it's just been amazing watching how TC has grown and matured throughout the years. And yes, he was a little bit difficult um, when he was 16, 17, 18, probably till a few weeks ago. Um, but again, just uh, the trophy of grace that God has demonstrated through his life. I mean, and we all are in different ways. And we all have our different struggles. And something I've really learned at the ministry that I'm working with right now is that all of us are broken. It's just that some of us are a little more apparent. And some of us are a little bit better about hiding it. But the one thing I've learned is I can be honest about it because we tell everyone, embrace your brokenness because that's the start of your healing and restoration and your testimony of how God can use you to work in other people's lives as well. So this morning, I just wanted to go ahead and uh, piggyback on, uh, on your sermon series here. I believe this is going to be the last week of it. And we have been going through an experiment with our college ministry. Um, I was in college ministry for 24 years, and we ended that about three years ago now. In fact, uh, my, one of my college roommates is here with me today, and he travels with me from Illinois. This is Bernie. He's a physician now in East Central Illinois. Just wave at everyone. Something awkward like, I know, but I was going to get to you. I feel like I brought my wife with me today. (laughs) 
and then also Mike, who was a freshman at the university when I first went into uh, full-time ministry when we planted a campus church at the University of Illinois. And again, watching both of them as they've grown and matured in the relationship with Christ, that's what it's all about, reaching people and then sending them out to go fulfill and accomplish what God has called them to do. But today we want to again talk about how different ways that we have learned throughout the scriptures, that many of the ways we navigate through the tensions and the conflicts that we have. And right now um, we're going over all these debates about how to respond to the LGBT community at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Since 2006, we have been actively engaging many of the students who have been ostracized by the church. And our desire has been to make it known to them you still have access to God. You know, we don't care what your pastors and your families and your Sunday school teachers may have said to you in the past. We are all sinners before God, but yet we all have access to him. But for some reason, when I say things like that, church leaders, pastors have a problem with it and start to assume that we have embraced some type of different gospel that excuses different things in our lives. When the truth is, no, We're trying to connect people with the one who can restore every single one of our lives. But before I camp out on that too long, just want to go in and look at this theme of swimming lessons once again. This has been a timeless pursuit in all of our hearts and lives to serve God. I mean, to to reconnect with our creator. Um, There is a natural pursuit of God within our hearts to know and to worship something And we've always told our college students, if you don't worship God, you're going to worship something. And whatever you worship, you're going to follow, and it's going to control you. But then you look at the lives of the people in the Old Testament, actually going all the way back to Adam and Eve. No matter what they experienced when it came to God's prosperity and his blessing, even though he said he was going to take care of all of their needs, what became their pursuit? It was always back to self. Being self-centered, self-involved, it was always about self-gratification, self-indulgence, and they were consumed with this need to be 100% independent of this benefactor in the sky. Even though he was going to take care of them and loved them unconditionally, they wanted to go out and do it on their own. So whether it was in the garden, and we fast forward to Babylon as you talked about the Tower of Babel, and you start advancing through time. Right after that, in Genesis 12, we see that God makes this amazing promise to a man named Aram who was found to be faithful. And he told him, leave your descendants behind. A type of saying, leave behind all the things that are holding you back from embracing what I have for you. And then go and possess the land because I have great plans for you. In fact, even though you're like almost 100 years old, you're going to start to have descendants. And they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And your barren wife is going to bear a child. But they started to challenge that. They started to question. Even says that Sarah began to laugh in a mocking way because she's like, I am so advanced in years. How is it possible for me to have children? So even though they recognized Yahweh as the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of all things, they decided in their minds, we need to help God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. So you know that whole messed up story. We're not going to get into all that right now because, again, I could camp out there. And then we fast forward a couple decades to their grandson, Jacob, who we know was a usurper. That's what his name means. One who would connive and take shortcuts. And then we see this amazing conflict that takes place between him and this man by this riverbank. This man reaches out and pops his hip out of joint where he was going to be limping for the rest of his life. But it wasn't just his physical limp that God was trying to make apparent to him. God was telling him, Jacob, from this moment on, you will no longer depend on yourself. You will no longer try to come up with your earthly schemes, but you're going to depend on me. You're not going to be able to walk in your own strength any longer. But then Jacob's descendants began to outnumber the Egyptians, and they feared them, so they enslaved them. So for several hundred years, they became the slaves of the Egyptians, and they built their cities. They cried out to God for deliver, and he raised up Moses to lead them out into the desert. But once again, even though he provided for them through these mighty signs and wonders and plagues and provided food for them, 
they started thinking, you know what? We don't know who this God is. Moses is the only one who talks to him. And even though he's uh, defeated Pharaoh's armies, he's led us out of Egypt. He's heading, leading us to this promised land. We've seen his mighty hand. You know, that little thing with parting the Red Sea, this amazing pillar of fire and the cloud. We can't trust in him. We've got to try and do something on our own. But yet God kept giving them chance after chance after chance. So he came up with this very simple solution of how they could be restored in their relationship, undoing the work of Adam and Eve, which was passed on to us. God said, I'm going to come up with 613 laws that you have to obey meticulously every day, every second for the rest of your lives. Things like animal sacrifice, observing the Sabbath, what to do, what not to do. If you think that the Christian walk is difficult at times, imagine having to know all of these laws and living them every single day of their lives. Well, right in the center of the camp was this place called the Tent of Meeting, or the Tabernacle, and eventually it became the Temple. And this is where the presence of God would descend and have fellowship with his people. And he was saying to them once again, if all you would do is acknowledge me as your God and worship me, I will be there for you. I will provide for you. No one can harm you. You will be known among the nations. But within a short 50-year period, the kingdom began to degrade. And people once again turned from God to worship other idols and intermarry among the other gods. So fast forward again through several centuries as different nations began to rise up against the people of God and take them captive, whether it was the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, or whoever, God was working in their lives trying to get their attention and bring them back to where they needed to be. Well, he promised them through the prophets, I am going to bring you the one and final deliverer, the Messiah. He's going to free you. Well, when they were thinking of a Messiah... They thought someone was going to come with this amazing army to defeat the Babylonians, to defeat the Persians, to defeat the Greeks. They had it all wrong. They had no idea what was coming next. Well, as decade after decade went by, it changed from when is the Messiah going to come to why is he not returning? And then they started to deduced the fact that God wasn't returning because of evil and sin and wickedness among the people. So they started to target people within their population. You know, the tax collectors, the, the prostitutes, the lepers, people who are unclean. We refer to them as untouchables. And then there was another class of people as this caste system began to develop was the plebeians. I'm just making these terms up for the sake of this morning. But they were the majority of the people who would support the work of the temple and the different priests. And they were most of the Israelites who were just trying to get on with their lives. But then there was a third caste known as the Pharisees or the religious leaders. And they were at the top of the chain because they were the spokespeople that go before God. They were the ones who were bowed before when they walked down the streets. They were the ones who were holy and righteous. They were the ones who had access to God's word. And they would pass judgment on God's people. The only thing is, when they pointed out people's sin, they did nothing to help them with it. They didn't minister to people's needs. All they did was present the problem and not try to lead them through to a solution. But you see, as we fast forward to the 21st century, we still have that caste system, which is based on appearance and power and being able to lord dominion over others. We make ourselves feel better and more spiritual by making other people look more sinful. We begin to target them and say, they're the ones to blame for the ills in our country. They're the ones who are the one causing problems. They're the ones who are causing our journeys to be a little bit more uncomfortable. They're the ones who are taking prayer out of the schools. They're the ones who are refusing to let us put our messages on red cups at our favorite coffee shop. And we talk about persecution. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters overseas, when they're not praying desperately for God to move in their lives, they're probably looking at us like, what on earth is going on with you people? Oh, they're dropping on their knees and saying, oh God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the United States. They're not allowed to say Merry Christmas. 
They're not allowed to put up nativity scenes at City Hall. Would you please undertake for them and lead them through to deliverance? But we've become a body that is obsessed with numbers. We don't feel successful unless we have 10,000 people in our church, unless we have... 80% of our people involved in small groups, unless we have a huge bank account, unless our facility is meticulous with great carpet and great facilities and all the different things that every other church doesn't have. We need to be the biggest and the best. We have to have the most number of different ministries. We have to minister to every age group between children and adults and senior citizens. But yet, what is God calling us to really, really focus on? You know, here's some shocking statistics because we're so concerned about numbers. It is said that of the millions of dollars that is donated annually, very little of it goes to actually feeding the poor and spreading the gospel because most of it is spent on the comfort and pleasure of those who are already going to church. 95% of our income is spent on domestic projects, you know, like building huge statues, building huge monuments, to recognize man. Four and a half percent of our income is spent on regular missions. I don't know exactly what regular missions means, but, you know, just sending someone to Italy to sit in a cafe and relate to people, maybe give them a tract, and then go back to their five-bedroom apartment where they're making $85,000 a year probably. And then the last half of a percent is sent to frontier missions. Half a percent. Frontier missions is those places in the, in the world that have no active church ministering to its people on an ongoing basis. But yet we have a world that starves for real, substantial, genuine presentation of the gospel because they're dying to know who their creator is. And even the people who do walk in our church doors, we might reach them through you know, having a barbecue in the neighborhood having a different event by showing the passion of the Christ at the local movie theater. But once they come in, job accomplished. We're done. We have forgotten what discipleship means. We don't arm people for the battle ahead. It's the equivalent, if we're going to continue with this um, swimming lesson, it's the equivalent of helping someone to the high dive and letting them jump off, but not teaching them how to swim. Because we're preparing people to go out into the world to simply fall on their faces. If you were to see all the statistics about young adults right now, millennials, when it comes to their beliefs, and less than 75% of them believe that, God, that Jesus really is the one true God, this is what's happening to our church in America. But where does God really want our attention? Not on our facilities, not on those stupid numbers. Because those numbers mean absolutely nothing. We could have 10 people who were really sold out for God and actually change the Twin Cities here versus a whole congregation of 3,000 people who only come to a facility on Sunday morning out of religious obligation. But where does our attention need to be? And again, thinking of this for me, I, I thought of a funny moment a few years ago. I was actually preaching at another church in the Chicago area, and I was staying at a hotel, and I was sitting poolside, and there was this child who kept running away from his dad. So the father finally caught him, held him in his arms, and he seemed to settle down for a while until the father walked into the pool holding his son. And the thing is, the kid began to scream at the top of his lungs. I mean, it's shrill, it's hurting my ears. I'm like, kid, it's okay. He started kicking. He started um, pushing his father And what this child didn't realize is that he was already safe in his father's arms. But the more that he resisted, he was actually in danger of falling out of his father's arms. If he would have just sat still, knowing that his father was going to protect him. In that moment, between father and son, everything was going to be okay. So in these few moments, and I'm sorry if that was a lie... We'll, 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 we'll see what we can do here. I want to talk to you about prayer. In fact, when I have been in the last three years looking for a new church to attend, as I've talked to several pastors about their prayer life and, the, and the, their corporate prayer life in their communities, 
Um, they, they start to look at me blankly when I even suggest that they have a weekly or a regular prayer meeting at some time or another. But people ask, why do you place such an emphasis on prayer? Well, this is the text for this morning. Get ready for it. Um, please pay attention because I'm going to read it pretty quickly, and I don't want you to miss any of it. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray continually. You guys keep up with me? Pray continually. That means at all times. To keep your eyes open while you pray. To keep seeking after God. You know, you look at Jesus' steps as he was teaching his disciples. How many times did it say that he went off to a solitary place to get alone with his father? That he could be heard late at night crying out to God. Early in the morning, he would always seek after his father in heaven. But we think of our lives right now. What is our quiet times like? Our devotional lives? Maybe a couple times a week. Maybe once a month. Maybe during a, a special call to prayer, like a week of prayer or something like that. Maybe the National Day of Prayer. Maybe see you at the poll. Maybe grace before meals. Maybe that's the summation of our prayer. But why do we emphasize this? Because as we look through the New Testament, particularly at the book of Acts, and we see this new church beginning to grow, I submit to you today that the only reason that they were able to make an impact, not just in Jerusalem, but to that time, the farthest parts of the world, was because they were people of prayer. Even when the Holy Spirit came upon them, you just celebrated Pentecost last week, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it wasn't in the middle of a potluck. It wasn't in the middle of a garage sale or a small group leader training session. It was in the middle of a prayer meeting when they were able to heal people. They were going to the temple to pray, as was their regular schedule. They went out of habit to continue to seek after God. And every time there was a disaster, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, they began to seek out their Father in heaven. So three quick thoughts today. First of all, prayer is an individual privilege. Did you hear what I said? Prayer is an individual privilege. There's a passage here in Luke chapter 10, probably very familiar with. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed them into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was worrying over the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits there while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha. And you kind of think in the thoughtful, he's like, you poor stupid thing. <laughs> Blessings on you. My dear Martha, you are so upset over all these details. There is really only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. So as Jesus is going on his way to Jerusalem, he's teaching in the, among the crowds. He goes and stays with this family, and he begins to teach them. And all of a sudden, the younger of the two sisters is absolutely enamored at his words. She was sitting at the feet, literally, of her Savior, taking in all of his words, wanting to simply be with him. And we know there's a lot of hindrances in prayer. Jesus said to Martha, you're upset over all these details, but Mary has chosen what is better. Well, obviously we live in a Martha-paced world, don't we? There's so many things that we need to get done. In fact, I always made fun of our college students when they forgot different things. I said, you know what? There are these neat apps that they've developed. They're called calendars. They're called to-do lists. It is possible to prepare in advance a list of things that you need to accomplish so that you can check them off once they're done. But when our college students would come back to me and say, you know what, I know that you want us to live for God now and you want us to pray and do all these things and grow spiritually, but, you know, I'm really busy right now. I'm going to do that later when I get a job and I'll have more time. Well, you know what happens after that. Then they might go to grad school and then they put it off again. Then they get a job. Then they become... Uh, they, they, they become a yuppie, and then they become a dink. Was that double income, no kids? And then all of a sudden, they have kids. 
And they're saying, okay, we'll get responsible and spiritual later. And then all of a sudden there's karate classes and gymnastics and soccer and baseball and all these different things. And then all of a sudden someone wants to run for president of the PTA. And we've still forgotten God. We still put him off to the last because we want to, resp- we want to focus on the details. Now, Jesus isn't saying that it's unimportant. He wasn't saying that what Martha was doing was useless because obviously when it came to the early church and the followers, they ate a lot. Everything they did was around food, which is I have no problem with. But what he was saying was, that's important, but this is even more important. You know, so a lot of our young adults, they get all of a sudden radically saved. They go to all the prayer meetings. They sign up for everything. They're in every small group. They go on every mission trip. They go to every Christian concert. They totally embrace the Christian subculture. And then you look at them and you just want to say, will you go out and get a job? Would you please learn how to support yourself? Because there are other responsibilities that you need to take care of outside of this fellowship. But we can never, ever neglect our relationship with the one true God that we have access to on a daily basis. You know what this is awesome about? What is awesome about this? You, know, you think about the dentist. You think about different people that you need to visit. You think about businessmen or bankers. You usually have to sit there and wait for a while. When it comes to God, we don't have to go through anybody else. We don't have to make an appointment a month in advance. We can simply enter into his presence and begin to pour out our hearts to him. But let's look at this verse. He says, Martha, you could substitute your name in there. Don't be concerned about the details of life but rather about your relationship with me. Mary understood the priority of prayer. Jesus said there's really one thing. Remember those two words, one thing. There's really one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it. She understood God's presence, that when he is in control, when her eyes are on him, that nothing else matters, that she could sit there and experience his peace. There is no greater privilege than the fact that we are able to come into the presence of God and worship and adore him and, in fact, listen to him at the same time. You know, Revelation 3.20, very familiar passage, and we usually use it on the streets of New Orleans when we're sharing Christ with people because we have this image of Jesus standing at this big wooden door and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The problem with that is we always talk about how God is trying to knock on the door of the hearts of non-Christians, but yet this letter was written to a church. You know what's pathetic about that? God is saying, church, you've been coming and doing all these religious activities for decades now, but would you please let me have control of your life? Would you please just simply spend time with me? Sitting at his feet, bowing and worshiping and acknowledging his lordship and dominion is allowing our hearts to bow before him and acknowledge once again, God, that you are in control. It's not about me. I'm no longer number one. You are in complete control. Now, a lot of times people ask, well, how do I pray? I can't pray more than a couple of minutes. We always challenge them. If you can't pray more than a couple of minutes, just shoot for those couple of minutes and then try to increase it from there. Try to increase it to 5, 10, 15 minutes. You see, it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of quality. You know, when it comes to spending time with your spouse, you don't try to get five minutes in with them just to sit and have a conversation, and then all of a sudden your timer goes off. Like, ah, got to go. Well, I could be wrong. I'm not married, so I don't know. But this is a simple and maybe even cheesy acrostic that I always use with our students just to get them started. If you take the word pray and then add the S on it, so we got praise, we take the letter P, and we do a different word praise, where we acknowledge God's sovereignty in our lives. We begin to thank him. We begin to lift him up. We begin to worship him. Just spend a few minutes thanking God. If you can't think of anything to thank God for, hold your breath for about 45 seconds and maybe for a minute. Then you'll find out something that you have to thank God about. Still can't think of it? Lift your hands up and look at your wrists. Are there any chains there? No, because God has broken our spiritual bondage. You still can't think of anything to... Thank God about, start walking around. Wow, I can thank God that I'm walking today. 
You know, how many times do we take the simplest things in our lives for granted, but yet it's disaster when it's taken away from us, like DSL and Internet when it starts to go down and we can't check our Facebook status because we took a picture of our lunch and we need to know how many people liked it. <laughs> the letter R stands for repent. That's where we begin to confess our sins. I've learned that one of the quickest prayers for God to answer is when you say, Lord, would you please show me where I've offended you? And please, at that moment, get a notebook and a, piece, uh, and, and a pencil because he's going to start listening. Not so that he can condemn us, but so that he can point it out to him. Hey, you know, these are things that I can help you work out. Letter A stands for ask. This is where we lift up different prayer needs and uh, intercession. People that we know who are sick and have a need for a touch from God. The letter Y stands for yield. For years, I used to teach our students that prayer was talking to God. And then I realized, no, it's a conversation with God. As we begin to speak to him, we also need to take time to allow him to speak to us. And then the letter S, I just threw that on there, stands for C's. Especially now with my current ministry, we constantly walk through the neighborhood and actually lay hands on buildings and ask God to hand those buildings back over to us. Not for the facility, the people. We're praying in advance, God, we're taking back what the enemy has stolen, and we want to claim it for you. The next thought I want to throw out today, that prayer is a corporate responsibility. We're taking it up one notch. It's not just for us as individuals, but it's for us as the body of Christ. It's a corporate responsibility. We see here in Acts chapter 4, as Peter and John are arrested for causing a little bit of ruckus at the temple, and then they they release them back to the other disciples. It says, as soon as they were freed, Peter and John found the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. Then all the believers were united as they lifted their voices in prayer. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor, King David, your servant, saying, Why did the nations rage? Why did the people waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That is what has happened here in this city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. In fact, everything they did according to your external will and plan. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give your servants great boldness in their preaching. Send your healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the building where they were meeting shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they preached God's message with boldness. Now we see here in Acts chapter 3, they heal a man. He's restored. It was at the regular time of prayer. And then Peter and John, as they're brought before the, uh, the Sanhedrin, they're threatened to stop preaching this gospel. They refuse to because they're saying, who should we obey, you or God? And they began to go among the disciples and tell them what had happened. And then they panicked, and they all went home and never did it again. No, they said, you know what? It's time to hit back. It's time to pray. But we don't do it by um, shaming people on social media. We don't do it by picketing and protesting. We do it on our knees. We get together, we join hands, and we begin to intercede for our community, for our government leaders, for our church leaders, for any people in influence that they might truly obey God and live for him. And we know that throughout history, as we look at the history of the church, that so many times the enemy has tried to destroy the church. But at the last second, God always raised up a remnant of believers who were sold out and began to seek after him once again. He would raise up this remnant, and incredible revivals would take place. Even through the great persecution of the church through different centuries, even after kings and monarchs and even other religious groups began to come against the people of God, as they would seek after him and submit to him, all of a sudden he would work on their behalf. So when we're threatened, we don't panic. We don't claim that we're being persecuted 
And I would really challenge any Christian in America to really, really be able to justify the fact that they could label what they're going through as persecution because we don't even know the beginning of it. But it says that their prayers invited God's blessing. They raised their voices to God, and he began to send his power on them. We see here in Psalms how wonderful it is, how pleasant when brothers live together in harmony. The Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life forevermore. You know, I heard this story a long time ago. As soldiers are marching into battle, you know, just down the road, they're marching in cadence, all in the same rhythm. And I don't know how they do it for so long because I have terrible rhythm and I would get thrown off immediately. But they're all marching in the same pace, at the same step. Their feet all hit the ground at the same time, all come up and hit the ground at the same time. But it's said that when they get to a footbridge, that they have to break that cadence. Because if they would continue to march in cadence, the force of all of them moving at the same time and coming down on the bridge would actually collapse it. Man, you think about the force and the power behind the body coming together, all praying in unison, seeking God for their cities, to seek after his presence and his anointing that he would move in powerful ways. And one of the things that I really wanted to see accomplished while I was a college pastor at the U of I was to open up a 24-7 prayer center in the basement of our facility on campus. And we tried to start it and restart it several times. But back in 2006, as we gathered together different leaders from different groups, there was about seven or eight students who put together a steering committee. We have about 35 evangelical groups at the University of Illinois. And I'm talking about groups that want to preach the gospel. I'm not talking about a political organization. I'm talking about people who believe that salvation comes through grace. But as some of these coordinators came together, we put together this prayer chain. It was only supposed to go for a week. But we noticed that momentum was building. So we decided to go for another week. And then we prayed again, asking what we should do. Then we left it open. Fourteen weeks later, after 26 different ministries got involved, we started seeing the body of Christ become one. And I'm still praying for that to happen at some point at the university. You know, as I've been searching for a church again, it's really grieving me because one of the things that I'm looking for in their weekly schedule among their programs is a regular, ongoing corporate prayer meeting. And I'm not finding any. Even churches of my denomination, we're supposed to be known for prayer. They've relegated to a quarterly prayer meeting because they don't want to lose its special nature with the people. Or they have a once-a-month prayer meeting. And then they wonder why their churches aren't growing, people aren't getting saved, they're not seeing healings and miracles and signs and wonders. They're wondering why the church as a whole is not growing. It's because we don't know how to seek after God. They also sought after God's provision. They said, Lord, would you enable your servants to speak with great boldness? See, he's given us all a calling. But yet, we don't always feel like we can speak. We don't always feel like we have what we need. But God is saying, whatever I call you to do, I'm going to give you everything you need to fulfill that. Then these prayers acknowledge God's sovereignty. As they said, stretch out your hand, perform mighty, miraculous signs and wonders. The rest is history. You read through. You see miracle after miracle. It even says in Acts 17, if they simply passed it under Peter's shadow, people would be healed. They were casting out demons. They were opening blind eyes. Jesus told them that was going to happen. Greater signs than these shall follow them that believe. And as I challenged the pastor of my denomination, I was telling him, you're like, you know what the difference is going to make if you start going after God and seeking him as a body? You're going to open up the door of heaven. And it's literally bringing what's up there down here. And then you could spread it to the world. God's grace, his blessing, his love. But yet, we have to spend so much time on our programs because we have to bring in the money. We have to bring in the people. Well, let's bring in the presence of God first. I told him, the word pray or form of it appears in the book of Acts 32 times. 28 chapters. I think it's pretty important. I think it's vital to the body of Christ that we put prayer first. And then what does it say at the end of this passage that I just read? It said, as they were praying, the place where they were at was shaken. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been in a prayer meeting that an earthquake started. But I think it's very significant that the place was shaken. They weren't shaken. You know, when disaster comes, like Y2K, you know, part of our ministry is a thrift store, and we saw an old book from 1999, How to Prepare for Y2K. And I was like, really? That's still out in print, and it's on our bookshelf. I wanted to throw it away, but obviously my boss wanted me to keep it out there because someone out there might need it so that they know how to prepare empty bottles of milk in case the computers go down. But man, who was panicking in 1999? Who was getting ready and building up munitions in their basements because it was going to usher in the second coming of Christ, but it's going to plunge us into darkness first, and the Antichrist, Nikolai Carpathia. Left behind was going to open up right in front of us. So we had to get ready for it because we were going to become the tribulation force. We panicked. We were the ones shaken instead of shaking the world around us. And this is pretty much what I'm annoyed about. Now I ask people, you know what I'm annoyed about? And they're like, I don't have the time right now. The church that I grew up in, and let's just say that they don't necessarily believe the same way that we do. They you know, have a lot of what some people would call idols. They have a lot of set formats, the way that they do things. Everything's written months in advance. And kind of boring, that's what they would say. But at the church I grew up in, my brother still attends that church. They have had a 24-7 prayer room going for 18 years. They're calling out to God. In fact, a few years ago, they reached their millionth hour of prayer. But then people always come back and say, well, who are they praying to? We know that they're not necessarily praying to God. But then my response was, well, then what excuse do you have? If you really have a connection with the creator of all the universe, yet you're not taking advantage of it. Do you really know who God is? Because if we did, it wouldn't be a thing that we would have to force ourselves to do. We would want to be with him. I have yet to meet a couple that is engaged and saying, oh, man, i got to spend time with my fiancé today. Man, could you, like, call me after an hour and pretend it's an emergency so I can leave? I know none of us have ever done that in a meeting. We don't behave that way. But if we really have an intimate, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ, it shouldn't have to be something that we have to work up. We shouldn't have to go over a silly acrostic. We should be saying, Jesus, I want to be with you. First thing, when we get up in the morning, we want to drop to our knees and say, Jesus, I love you. I thank you that I'm able to open my eyes today, that I'm able to breathe, that I'm able to serve you one more day. Can you draw me closer to you? Is it possible to get to that point where the last thought in our minds is, Jesus, thank you for another day to serve you and to bring people into a closer relationship with you, just simply to know you and to grow in relationship with you. But yet we are creatures of events and we're reactionary. Here's what I mean. September 11th, 2001, we all remember it very clearly. For those of us who are old enough, we remember where we were. Well, I remember that night my pastor called an emergency prayer meeting. The church house was packed. People were on their knees. We were crying out for America. We weren't crying out for other nations. We were only crying out for America. And it was an emergency time. We knew that something bad was about to happen, that it was going to begin to, that we were going to have to strike back. But then fast forward a year later, September 11th, 2002. Where were the people? The church houses were empty. Because we only pray when there's an emergency. People are asking me about the National Day of Prayer. Like, Terry, are you going to go to this prayer meeting? I go, no. Well, why not? It's a National Day of Prayer. We need to be praying for our country. And I was like, yeah, you can do that. But what about the other 364 days of the year? You know, I saw this meme on Facebook. They're like, after all these school shootings that have been taking place. And they're like, all, whenever there's a disaster in one of our schools, people start crying, where was God? Well, it's your fault because you took God out of the schools and you won't let us pray anymore. I've always said this, as long as there's high school physics, there's going to be prayer in schools. <laughs> but what the greater problem is, 
as we talk about how prayer has been taken out of our schools, out of the schoolhouse, we've taken it out of the church house. And we've probably taken it out of our own houses as well. Maybe, just maybe, God would want us to seek after him, not when there's an emergency, not when we need something, but simply on a regular basis. You know, there was a story of a church right next to a bar. It was, let's just say it was a place of ill repute. And the bar of the church was really uncomfortable, you know, having their congregants go past this bar every day when they were coming to service. So they began to band together to pray that God would shut that bar down. They had this prayer chain, fasting. Well, as fate would have it, lightning struck that bar and burned it to the ground. And they're all rejoicing. God, thank you for hearing our prayer. Well, the bar owner sues the church and begins to declare they're responsible for me losing my livelihood. They're like, no, that wasn't us. That was, a, that was an act of God. That was nature. So as they're in the courtroom and they're hearing these testimonies from both sides, the judge looks at them and he's like, I've learned two things in this court case. The bar owner believes in prayer. The church doesn't. And the third thought we want to share today, prayer is a universal mandate. Do we live in a divided country right now? As we see government leaders who are lying to us, corruption is rampant, a rise in crime, racism, abortion rates, bankruptcy, poverty, still the spread of HIV and 34 other sexually transmitted diseases. We see a rise in teen suicide, collapse of Social Security, sex trafficking, D.C. right there in Champaign County, they've arrested someone within the past month who is responsible for a sex trafficking ring. This is where T.C. grew up. All these things are happening around us. And every day I hear Christians on the radio being shaken by the events around them, saying, oh, God, would you please deliver us from these evil people? So are we really trusting in him? Are we really calling out to him? Here's a familiar passage that we like to cite on the National Day of Prayer, Second Chronicles 7.14. And there are times I think I, I've seen it on so many bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets, I can't stand it anymore. But if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about those evil sinners out there? Is he talking about all those wicked people that we see on the streets? All those people that we see on the news? No, he's talking about us. Man, that's pretty pathetic, isn't it? He realizes that we're the ones who are messing up. We're the ones who are sin. But he's saying, if my people would be the ones who would follow me, would get on their faces, if we would simply respond to his call, use his name, to recognize his name as holy. We pray it during the Lord's Prayer, remembering who we're representing and who we're serving. It's in Jesus' name that we're healed, saved, delivered, changed, and transformed. There is no other name by which man can be saved. If they would humble themselves, man, this is the one problem that we're going to be having as the church in America. We are not known for, known for being humble. We are not knowing, known for being Christ-like. We're known for being able to throw out selective, out-of-context Bible passages, definitely. We're known for being self-righteous, but we're not known for representing Christ. How many times have we heard, we have no problem with Christ. It's his people. If they would seek my face. You know what this means? That means it doesn't matter who gets elected into office. That we shouldn't be seeking out our presidents, our congressmen, our senators, whoever's going to be in the Supreme Court or our government programs or the military, the one we're trusting in constantly is God himself. And if they would turn from their wicked ways, and once again we say this, it's time for introspection. God, where am I messing up? Where in my life am I withholding your, when I'm being, withholding your blessing because of the fact that I'm living in rebellion against you and disobedience? Would you please show me where I need to get back in the right relationship with you? And then God says, if you do these things, then I will hear you from heaven and forgive your sin 
and heal your land. Well, take a look. Turn on the news. It's pretty obvious that the church is not responding. We blame those who make our road bumpier, who make it uncomfortable. We blame those who are supposedly challenging the, the true biblical definition of marriage, which you know, is still a little bit um, obscure. We can talk about that sometime later. And we ourselves seem to be redefining marriage on our own. But can we accept the fact that it's not certain communities, it's not certain political parties, it's not certain demographics, but it's the body of Christ that is abdicating its place and position with God and saying we're going to try and do it on our own. Prayer is not just a simple seasoning that we throw on the religious acts that we do. It's not meant as a decoration to our schedules, or we do it because we know we have to. We put it on our schedules because, like, oh, I guess we need to have a prayer meeting. We need to have a week of prayer at the beginning of the year. Or we do it simply because, hey, we heard that they're doing that in Korea. Maybe we could reproduce that here. Or is it simply as a body that we want to get on our knees and cry out to God and seek after his face? When Jesus said that Mary has found that one thing, I turn us back to Psalm 27. David found it. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning, and we ask that you would just plant it deep in our hearts, that prayer would not be a chore, that it would not be something that we have to work up to force ourselves to do, or a meeting that we have to drag ourselves to. But God, out of our relationship with you and our desire to know you and to make you known to others, that we would simply quiet our hearts and come before you and know how to have a conversation. God, I ask that you would help us to make you number one in our lives again. We need you desperately more than we imagine. And we just ask in the hearts of every person here, including myself, that you would continually remind us to return to that place of solitude with you so that our relationship can continue to grow. God, we thank you for today. Just bless us all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.